In our culture, Christmas gets more attention than Easter. And on purpose, as a church, we are going to be intentionally focused on Easter and less on Christmas because of Scripture. You will find just about 20 verses uh, for the day that Jesus was born. And you will find nearly every gospel, the day of his death, the 24 hours around his death, about 90 verses per gospel that, in, that are in our Bibles. And if you look at the rest of the New Testament, at how many times the rest of the New Testament refers back to Jesus' birthday, I don't think you'll find any references. And you look at the New Testament and how many times it refers back to the cross, Oh, yeah, quite a few. So Christ told us as an ordinance, uh, two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table, and both of them are to point back toward his death, his burial, resurrection. So in the ordinances, in the New Testament, in the pages of Scripture, Uh, we are to focus on the end of Christ's time on earth and not the beginning. And so we are intentionally for um, a while here at church, hopefully years to come, we will focus more on the death uh, and the resurrection of Christ. And um, his birth, yes, is important, uh, but not nearly as important as his death. So what we're going to do, we looked last year, just on Easter uh, Sunday, at uh, Matthew's Gospel, and tried to cover all 90 verses. I had planned to preach, and uh, God didn't want me to speak that day. Um, So this year, instead of uh, trying to pack it all in one day, uh, I thought that we would lead up to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection. And you'll see the background uh, should stay the same uh, in my notes, and we are headed toward an empty tomb. Uh, We won't get there for four weeks uh, when Easter arrives, Resurrection Sunday. And so we have split up uh, Mark's account, and so we'll roughly cover about 20 verses per message in order to get uh, through uh, Mark's uh, account of the arrest and trials and crucifixion and resurrection. Next year, we'll look at Luke. And so, today, uh, my Savior suffered. Your Savior suffered. Our Savior suffered alone. Well, Isaiah 53, uh, if you read Isaiah, you will see that Israel is disobedient in the first half of the book, and then Isaiah 40 to 66, you have to discern in reading the context It talks about a servant and a servant and a servant, and when it talks about a disobedient, unfaithful servant, it's talking about Israel, and when you read Isaiah 40 to 66 and you see an obedient servant, one who is submissive to the Father, doing what God wants him to do, that is Christ, and so you'll see Christ quite often in the end of Isaiah's book, and no place clearer about the crucifixion than it is in Isaiah 52, 13, and all of Isaiah 53. And I'm going to show you just one phrase today uh, that goes along with our message from Mark's account. So the reason I'm going to point us back to Isaiah is because this is a suffering servant, and Mark's portrayal of Christ is the perfect servant. 
And so a perfect servant in our mind doesn't suffer because perfection doesn't equal suffering. But that's not true. Perfection equals Christ's likeness in our minds. It has to be that way. And we have to constantly go back to God's word because God is conforming us into the image of our Savior. And if our Savior suffered, and he suffered, First Peter says, as an example for us in how to suffer. Oh, okay. So suffering is part of the Christian life. In many ways of suffering that Jesus suffers, and we'll see today, loneliness is one of those things that he suffers because of the struggles of the people around him when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Isaiah 53 in verse 3 tells us that the Messiah, when he comes, he would be despised and rejected by men. You may have a little uh, footnote there by the word rejected. I looked it up. It can also be translated forsaken. He was despised and forsaken by men. Okay, keep that in our minds as we go now back to Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 32 I should have 32 to 51 on the screen is what we'll cover today, 52. 32 to 52 today uh, should be our, our text. We read 32 to 42, and we won't read it again, but this is the Garden of Gethsemane. If you looked up Gethsemane, uh, the word means olive press. It was a garden that Judas Iscariot knew where it was. I think Judas Iscariot and the band of at least 600 soldiers and people sent to arrest Jesus first probably go to the upper room, which is where Judas thinks that if they are still there, that would be the first place they would check. And he says if they're not at the upper room, uh, which is the last time Judas was with them, then Judas would know where they would go because Jesus often went here. An olive press, likely at the middle of the garden, which uh, surrounded maybe by olive trees, and an olive press would be, if you um, could imagine, presses olives in order to get olive oil. We still use olive oil in our cooking. Uh, in this day, they would use olive oil for their cooking, uh, for medicinal purposes, as well as for anointing. Um, uh, you see uh, anointing kings uh, and priests consecrating people for serving the Lord. Uh, they needed olive oil for that. And so Gethsemane was a quiet place, and this is during uh, Passover, which is a very busy time in Jerusalem, and a short walk gets you out of the city and into a quiet place for prayer. So Jesus brings his disciples here, in verse 32, and they, he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he takes, so he has 11 disciples here, and he leaves the 11 there, and he takes with him out of the 11, Peter, James, and John. So there's eight disciples by themselves. He takes Peter, James, and John and begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. 
remain here and watch. Opposite of sleeping, stay awake. We have seen elsewhere in in our reading of the the Gospels that we are to watch and pray, uh, that we are to stay awake spiritually and be ready for the coming of Christ. And here, this idea of watching is stay with me. And when you are greatly sorrowful, even to death, what is sometimes most helpful is someone to be with you. I have been with people at the moments of their last days. We intentionally go visit people on their deathbed because they're in in a time of suffering and death is imminent that people don't want to be alone. We want somebody with us. And so Jesus wants companionship. And he tells his disciples, hey, stay with me, stay awake. He doesn't say pray with him. He just says, stay with me. Stay awake. And he, going a little farther away, verse 35 falls on the ground and prays, and it's likely that this is within, this is in sight of those, at least the three. Peter, James, and John can see Jesus because he only goes a little further than them. They possibly could hear him if they were awake, and if possible, the hour might pass from him. This is what Jesus prays, verse 36, and he says, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he comes back and finds them sleeping, and he says to Peter, likely and obviously the leader of the group of three, the leader of the twelve, the leader of the early church in Acts, and he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now he tells them to pray as they watch. Stay awake and pray so that they don't enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but your flesh is weak. And again he goes away and prays and saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and we're not even told, they don't even say anything. The second time... And the third time, they don't have a reply either. And Jesus says to them the third time, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The beginning of the end is here. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Four Gospels record the events around the death of Christ. And yet, we could spend week after week after week on a passage like this and not get all of the truth out for us. You can read this passage every year and say, God, show me yourself, show me your glory here, and you will see it. You and I will see the glory of our Savior in his last hours. What are we supposed to see? Well, we can see ourselves in the disciples, right? where we're supposed to be watching and staying awake, and we're tired and we sleep. 
We're supposed to be reading our Bibles now, and sometimes we read our Bibles or we are praying, and we don't even remember where we stopped because we fell asleep. Been there, done that, right? We need this passage because there's a better option than our flesh in following our Savior. We're a lot like the disciples here. Jesus knows they're tired. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. Remember, he was in a boat sleeping. It was <laughs> tossed to and fro in the, in the storm. But this is not the time to sleep. This is the time to stay awake and pray because of the incredible amount of temptation that's going to face the disciples in the next few hours. And when Jesus knows there, you are going to be tempted like you have not been tempted before, now is the time to stay awake. There's a better option than flesh, our flesh, in following our Savior. We were encouraged in Sunday school, as we looked at Luke 14 this week, that we are to die to our flesh. We are to take up our cross daily and follow him. We have to struggle with our flesh day in and day out. The temptation of our flesh to respond like the disciples here is very strong. And yet Jesus is our example in overcoming the flesh in order to please the Father. So, but we're told in Isaiah 53, we're expecting that he is going to be despised and forsaken because that's the prophecy about him 700 years earlier. So we're expecting him to be forsaken, and this passage tells us how he was forsaken. And we'll see a private and then a public submission to God. A private submission to God, and when we privately submit to God, our flesh gets weaker, and the Spirit that we, is in us, the Holy Spirit, is in control of our lives. And then we are bold, and the disciples later are bold. But here, boldness is not what we see from the disciples. And often it's not in our lives. Private submission to God, or private submission to the flesh. Well, you don't have to assume that Jesus, the perfect servant, shows perfect submission to the Father, privately. The perfect servant shows submission to the Father. Let's look again at how Jesus speaks. Even though in verse 34, his soul is very sorrowful, even he feels like death, he says, I want some companionship. Peter, James, and John, I brought you with me so that you could be a companion, companions with me. Stay awake, watch. And he falls on the ground and he prays that if it were possible. Now, is it possible? He knows it's not. But he's praying knowing that he is about ready to be squashed like an olive in a press. And he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press. He is about ready to be crushed by God. How do, how do we know? Because he knows prophecy about himself. He knows Isaiah 53 says, it pleased the Father to crush him. And why does the Father crush his Son? Because we all deserve to be crushed. 
and we're not. See, Christ is showing us, despite how difficult, and even if you feel like dying, submission to God is possible. You do not have to submit to your flesh in the hardest of times. We just sang a song about death, that we don't have to fear death. The problem is we do fear death. We fear death for ourselves, and we fear death for those that we love, and we don't want to say goodbye to them. Honestly, if we stay on this earth for another hundred years, none of us are going to be here. We're all going to have to say goodbye, and we're all going to have to prepare ourselves for death. And Christ lives his first coming as an example for how to face death. And what we need to learn is submission to the flesh is optional and submission to the Father is not. We have a flesh. We have the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lusts of our flesh. And we have to learn from our Savior. We cannot go to a cross. We cannot pay for the sin of the world. I get that. That's different. But we can learn from him. He is our example. In his suffering, 1 Peter 2 says, this is how you suffer. So go, go to 1 Peter 2. You can read that. We're not going to have time to do that today. But the perfect servant shows submission to the Father. And submission to the Father is how we suffer in the hardest of times. And it sounds like as Christ suffers, and it was written uh, an article that I read, that his heart here is where he was submissive to the Father in his heart. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the battle to submit Jesus as a man, submitting to the Father on his Christ's plan, the Father's plan for Christ, had to go to the cross. We saw in Luke's account that Jesus in Luke 9, and he doesn't, isn't crucified till Luke 23. In Luke 9, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And nobody's talking him out of going to Jerusalem. Because he knows the Father's plan for him is that he is the Lamb of God. And he has to die in our place. Shed his blood. He has to take all of your sin all of my sin, all of the most gross sins of all humanity. He has to take those as a cup, boil all those down and put it in a cup. And he has to drink that cup of God's wrath. And the perfect servant shows submission to the Father. And it's captured in the prayer in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup. Why doesn't he want, what, what, what is the cup? You can see cup mentioned in Psalm 16 and 116. That is the cup of blessing or salvation. That is a God's destiny for people. That's not the cup here of blessing or salvation. It's more likely mirroring the cup of Jeremiah 25 
and Isaiah 51. And we're not going to have time to look at those, but you can go back and look at Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51. And you'll see there that the cup that was given to Israel in Jeremiah 25 was a cup of disaster, a cup of God's judgment. God was going to bring judgment. And for 15 verses in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 29, you can see about the cup and you have to drink it and you don't have a choice whether you want to drink it because you are going to be judged by God. That's what we get from uh, uh, Jeremiah 25. Now, Isaiah 51, 17 is a cup of the wrath of God. And Christ, the wrath of God has to be poured out towards sinners because God is holy. God is a perfect judge, and he has to judge sin perfectly. So instead of judging sinners who deserve judgment and deserve to get crushed by God, God says to my son, you're going to go, and instead of my judgment falling on humanity, justly so, take them out of my hand, and I'm going to put you there. And then I'm going to smash you on the cross. And the father and the son knows this is the plan. This is why he comes. This is why he's born. The prophets around his birth, uh, Zechariah and Simeon, tell us about the plan of God. John the Baptist, when he first preaches about Jesus and sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knows the Old Testament. He knows the plan of the Father, and he's going to be perfectly submissive to the Father. He's the perfect servant, and in contrast in this story to the perfect servant and there's so much more here but we just <laughs> we don't have time um, the struggling servants of the perfect servant what are they showing at this time of private submission to god or submission to the flesh struggling servants peter james and john and often we look at weak people around jesus and say all right, Peter, why didn't you just keep your eyes on Jesus? You would have been able to walk the whole way to him on the water. Right, no. We, wouldn't have, we would have been with the other disciples in the boat like, eh, uh, I'm not getting out of this boat. And Peter's the one who actually has some faith to walk on the water, right? And we'll see later with the arrest. And we would have, if we were tired, and you know, you can see the, the amount of ministry that Jesus accomplishes and teaching and traveling in and out of Jerusalem for at least three or four days before this time, the disciples are very tired. And in being tired, it's, it's obvious that they're tired here. And it's likely that Jesus is tired, but he knows what he has to face. And they're tired, and what they say to Jesus it doesn't sound like there's anything recorded. When he finds them sleeping, he says, uh, couldn't you watch one hour? Couldn't you just stay awake, watch and pray? And you may not enter into temptation. You're going to be tempted to flee and um, deny that you know me. 
The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he goes away. He still feels like uh, death. And again, he comes and finds them sleeping. And their eyes are very heavy. And they didn't know what to answer him. They couldn't answer him. And the final time, verse 41. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And what, and you may just read verse 42 quickly, but the fascination of verse 42 is that Jesus, knowing he's going to go to a cross, goes toward his betrayer, toward his arrest, and seeing them afar off, because this is a huge group of people, at least 600, it could be up to 1,000 soldiers in a battalion. And they've got torches, and it's, you can't sneak around with that many people at night. And instead of Jesus saying, hey, let's flee, these guys are here to arrest me. No, he says, let's go toward them. So he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand, and he goes toward them. Why? Why would he go toward his arrest and trial and crucifixion? Because he is perfectly submissive to the Father. Remarkable. This is all done privately, now publicly. Verse 43, and immediately, as Mark often uses this word, Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, and from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So all these guys who hate Jesus, Jewish people, chief priests, scribes, and elders, all hate Jesus. They get a large crowd, uh, some of their servants, some uh, Roman soldiers, and they come. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. You notice He's only given a name here in Judas, and then he's just called the betrayer. His name isn't important. The betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one whom I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once. Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And one who stood by drew his sword. And struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know that person was Peter. Here he is nameless. One of the disciples. Uh, temporary boldness. Verse 48. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple. And for the last several days, that's where he was. I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all, that's the disciples, left him and fled. And a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Um, this is, I think, the only place that records this. And it is possible that this young man is the writer of our gospel. John Mark has a church in his house. Uh, this could be where the upper room was on the top of his house. And so they come 
first to the house of John Mark, thinking we're going to arrest them at the upper room. They're not there at the upper room. And so John, in curiosity, is sleeping, rises, throws a sheet on, and, and follows the crowd to see what's going to happen. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but uh, it makes sense that uh, John Mark would, um, would be here because he would know about this incident. So what happens in public? If we are not, if we are submitting to the flesh privately, we are going to struggle with the flesh publicly. The disciples failed the test of privately submitting to the Father or submitting to the flesh. Jesus always passing the test and passes the test in, in, in private and in public so the disciples are not ready for the temptation that's going to face them when the crowds come. If they would have stayed awake and watched and prayed and asked God's help, okay, it could have been different, but we're, we can identify with the disciples struggling and submitting to our flesh privately um, and then leaving Jesus alone. Public submission to God or the flesh. So what do we see first? We see a man named Judas. We know a little bit about him. His surname is Iscariot. He is uh, the betrayer. Jesus said elsewhere it would be better if this person wasn't born. Um, he's different than the other disciples. If you were all about money and greed... And there are people, many people today, that use Jesus' name to get extraordinarily wealthy and give people a little bit of spiritual talk, spiritual whatever, I'll pray for you, you send me a lot of money and I'll pray for you. That's baloney. Don't send those people money. Those are wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay, so this is Judas Iscariot, though. He's looking. He has the money for the disciples. He held, he's already stolen money from the disciples. And Jesus, and now he is showing obvious outward rebellion and complete submission to the flesh. Rebellion against God, greed, selfishness, and here, deceit. None of us like Judas. The world doesn't like Judas. But if we rebelliously reject God. Romans 1 tells us, as we submit to the flesh, our lives will look a lot like his. Deceitful, untrustworthy, greedy, lacking close friends, using Jesus to get what you want. And he feels really bad later, but it's too late. He comes up to him, kisses him as a sign of greeting and love, calls him teacher, rabbi, and that was the sign of who is Jesus among the crowd at the garden. Rebellious submission to the flesh. This person doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ, isn't following Christ, isn't expecting Christ to take away his sin. He merely uses Christ to get a little bit of money and then feels awful about it. Second, the disciples. They're not rebellious against Christ. They want to follow him. But remember, they've privately submitted to their flesh, and now publicly they struggle to submit to God and uh, stay faithful to Jesus and be with him 
as they go off as a crowd into the um, arrest. And so uh, there is an attempt here in verse 47. Probably more fear than logic, but Peter actually is expecting Jesus to, uh, as John says, he said the word and they all fell down, all 600 plus. And if I was Peter too, I'd be like, okay, say that word again. Just keep saying it. <laughs> Let them lay on the ground while we get out of here. But that's not the plan of the Father. That's not the submission of the Son to go to the cross, to be an example for us in how to suffer and how to please God even in suffering. And so submission to God and His plan is at the forefront of Christ's life and choices here. He rebukes the, His arresters in verse 48, 49, and then His disciples expectantly, cowardly, but I would say naturally we would do this too. They all left Him and fled. So in private, they fell asleep, left Jesus alone. Greatest agony. And now in the arrest, leaving him fleeing. And what did Peter say? And all the other disciples said just a few, maybe hour previous, if all forsake you, I'm not going to forsake you. And Jesus says, really? You guys are all going to forsake. Scripture is going to be fulfilled. What scripture is going to be fulfilled? Well, there's so many scriptures, uh, Psalm 22 and um, Isaiah 53 in particular. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. So what is Jesus saying? Instead of fearful submission to his flesh, Jesus says what? Let the scriptures be fulfilled, which means he is faithfully submitting to the word of God. The plan of God was written. This was God's plan from the Garden of Eden on. When Adam and Eve sin, and Jesus is the one, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of Satan, but in the process, his heel is going to be crushed. And Jesus says, I am submitting to the word of God. Why is he submitting to the word of God publicly? Because privately, he has already shown us what submission to the Father looks like, even when he is facing death. And our faith is going to be tested. All of us are going to be on death's doorstep someday. Our loved ones are going to maybe go before us in death, and we have to help them to say, you know what? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Death doesn't separate you. Death is merely how you get to the presence of God as a Christian. And fear of death can be gone. But you know what? Everyone who doesn't know Jesus is terrified of death. Look at the last three years, how the world reacted to a weakness that we all have, uh, prone to die from covid People were terrified of it. And those who privately submitting to God's will, publicly submitting to God's will, saying, you know what? Even if COVID takes me, I'll trust him. Like Job said, even if he slays me, I will trust him. 
first book of the Bible written. Trust in the Lord and his plan for our life is what we have to know. We cannot be ignorant of what God promises us. What does he promise us? Well, because Christ was forsaken, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are never going to taste what Christ tasted in the garden because of the cross. We are never going to be forsaken completely alone. We're never going to have to hang on a cross and look up and say, God, where are you? You've forsaken me. Jesus promises multiple times to his church, to his disciples, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will always be with you. And what Jesus wanted in this time of his life was companionship. Instead, what he got was beginning to taste of the cup of the wrath of God, and he was forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Christ shows us here faithful submission to the word. We are not promised a life of wealth and health. Anyone who teaches and preaches that, likely are false teachers as well today. What are we promised in the New Testament? All those who are godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What? Persecution? That's what the New Testament says. We don't live in the Old Testament where if we're faithful to God, we'll have wealth. We're not promised that in the New We are promised that even though we suffer and are afflicted, this light momentary affliction is but for a moment, and it works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4. We are promised the presence of God to endure suffering. As we just saw a couple weeks ago, we are promised while suffering that God's grace will be sufficient for us and that we will learn that God's grace is made perfect. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Do you believe that? Because when death knocks at your door, you're going to have to hold on to that. All of us are going to face death if Christ tarries. And that's when our faith will be real. Privately submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, the Father's plan for your life, and hold on to His grace, get to know His grace, walk with Him so close, and whatever He has for your life and my life, we'll be fine with it as Jesus was fine with it. Or we're going to struggle with our flesh. We have no reason not to submit to the Word of God. No reason not to submit to God's will, and His will is to conform us to the image of our Savior, and his first coming conforming, not his second coming where he comes as the lion that we sing and not coming to conquer. Oh, we want to be conformed to that image of Christ. No, we're conformed to the image of a suffering servant Savior. Will you forsake your flesh? This is what Jesus actually demanded of his disciples And we saw it in Luke 14 this week. Will you forsake your flesh, die to yourself, and take up your cross daily 
and follow him. If you say, eh, too high of a price, that's fine, because Jesus said, I want you to count the cost. No one builds a tower, no one builds anything that's really expensive without first counting the cost. And he says that right after he says, count the cost of following me. Don't tell the world you're a follower of me. Privately, you're submitting to your flesh. Publicly, you, when, it, when the heat is on, you're going to run. Count the cost. And let me tell you, it is always going to be worth it to follow your Savior. Always. The world's going to think you're an idiot. What are you doing with all your money? What are you doing with your time? I'm forsaking all. I'm following Jesus. What? You're following a dead guy? No, he's actually alive. He's in heaven. He's coming back. Yeah, right. So is the Easter bunny. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, no. Jesus is nowhere close to the Easter bunny or Santa. Those are fantasies. Jesus is real. He's coming again. We better stay awake. We better be ready for his coming. And how do we be ready for his coming? Privately, we forsake our flesh. Publicly, we forsake our flesh. Don't give in to your flesh. As a church, we're helping each other, provoking each other to love and good works, which looks like, hey, forsake, don't, <laughs> forsake your flesh. Don't forsake your Savior. Follow your Savior. He'll give you all the grace you need. Are you willing, though, to suffer because you're following your servant, Savior? Second question. Are you willing to die to yourself daily? Well, I did that Christian stuff. You have to die daily. I did that yesterday. Okay, well, today's a different day. Die today, too. <laughs> Keep dying to yourself daily. This is a choice. God doesn't force us to follow Jesus. But he shows us this is the best path. Because at the end of this path, there are great treasure in heaven for all eternity. It's going to be worth it. It's hard to imagine because we don't see it. We can't watch a YouTube video of someone enjoying the treasure of heaven right now. No, we don't need to, though. We have faith. And the just shall live by faith, not by sight. And Christ has to live by faith that if he was going to humble himself and become obedient to death, even the death on the cross, that one after that, Christ, he was going to be exalted at God's right hand. And he endured the shame, knowing that the exaltation was coming. Now it's our turn to forsake our flesh, endure the shame, I'm not living a fleshly life now. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. No matter what we suffer, we're promised suffering, but he, we're promised endurance. We're promised perseverance. We are promised everlasting life. You won't suffer forever. It might seem like you have been suffering a long time, or you have to suffer a lot longer. That's just, that's that small in comparison to eternity. How do we know because of faith? Because our Savior suffered. He bore the wrath of God. We're not going to bear his wrath. Are you willing to die to yourself daily? If you're not, then you can't follow your Savior. And then finally, then, when we forsake our flesh and we're willing to suffer, we're willing to die daily. What we want, an easy life. A lot in the bank. 
medicine at the end so that we don't feel the pain. That's all we want. We're not always guaranteed that. But we are guaranteed that God will be with us. His grace is sufficient. He will show you himself. He will be with you. What you want most when you suffer is not to be alone, and you will never be alone as a Christian. And as you realize you're never alone, and really forsaking flesh and following your Savior is the best life, you'll help others to follow that path too. God can use your life to point others to the same path. Let's pray. Our Father, we can learn so much from the suffering of our Savior. We can see ourselves in the weaknesses of the disciples, the deceit, the frailty, the tiredness, the fear. Yet you conquered death. You bore all of God's wrath, your wrath, for our sin so that we can be called children of the Almighty. We can be in your family. I pray that we would choose today and every day to wake up forsaking our flesh, reminding ourselves that we are in your kingdom for your glory, and this is not about us. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus as we have sung. Help us to follow you in life and in death, knowing that you never make a mistake. Even if you want us to be killed for you, you'll be with us through that experience, and you will allow us to be in your presence where there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Help us to enjoy your presence and your power this week. In Jesus' name, amen.